Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for the morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, the primacy of sowing the seed of the Bible, the folly of misplaced amazement, and the sin of the fear of men are all demonstrated by means of the Lord's instruction and action. Most importantly, the teaching of Christ's death and resurrection is plainly stated. Still, somehow, Mark's message did not sink in. At the end of the story, the followers of Jesus were so afraid of what men might do to them that they betrayed and abandoned their beloved master. Failing to trust in the promise of the Lord's resurrection, they instead went searching for a body. Worst of all, when commanded to preach what Jesus had already explained in chapter 8, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Lacking trust in the Lord's teaching, they were amazed and so afraid that they refused to sow the seed of the gospel as commanded. To see what is in front of one's nose, George Orwell writes, needs a constant struggle. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 211 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have come to chapter 16 in the Gospel of Mark. This is now the section where Mark's teaching about fear and his critique of poorly assigned amazement come to a head. The people are wanting a miracle they want the fireworks they want caesar they want big tough superhero and instead what they got is this weak shameful criminal on a cross they're hoping there might be a happy ending a transformation he comes off the cross or a fiery chariot or god comes and saves him or elias comes and saves whatever they want something big but when it doesn't happen there's shame and fear because uh uh-oh did we put our trust in the wrong guy And why would they think he's the wrong guy? Because he doesn't look like Caesar. Years ago, our professor, Father Paul Tarazi, described the Gospel of Mark as an onion. We're talking about amazement, Richard. We're talking about fear. We're talking about the things that people are looking for. And if we assume that the reader is searching for the same thing that the crowds are searching for, that's the psychological mechanism at work. And then we think of the Gospel of Mark as an onion. You peel a layer away and you think you're getting somewhere. 
and you keep peeling layers back and you peel more layers back, it's a challenge, right? What am I looking for? Can I find it? There seems to be more here. You keep pulling back, pulling back more. But when you get to the end of an onion, it's empty, just like the tomb. So whatever you were looking for at the center of Mark or at the end of Mark, it was always right in front of you. This is the point. There's nothing to get to. It's what has been said all along. That's why Jesus didn't want to talk about the ending of Mark, because you don't need the ending of Mark to hear what Mark is saying. It's critical. So now the women who were standing afar off are going to be running to the tomb, and we're going to see how this all plays out. Now, one thing the reader should keep in mind about the text itself, some people call this the short ending of Mark. So we're going to read up through verse 8, and that's because in the Byzantine lectionary and in some ancient manuscripts, this is where the book of Mark actually ends. We know that there is more text after that, but it's interesting to think about this as an ending of Mark because of where it leaves the reader. The reader is left with a cliffhanger at the end of Mark, and then there's nothing more. So we can see why people felt that it was incomplete, but it also is important to think about where it leaves us as the reader. If you were peeling each layer of the onion and taking each layer seriously, you don't need to end up anywhere. This is the point I really want to stress. If you're peeling back the onion and you understand the content of the teaching, the way the centurion did, the centurion didn't need anything else except Jesus's obedience to the Father's command to sow the seed of the teaching with his last breath. That's what's needed. So if you are looking for something else beyond what Jesus did on the cross, you don't understand the Gospel of Mark, and this is the great test of the New Testament. This is the great test of the Gospel of Mark and of the four Gospels in general. Can you recognize that everything you need in order to carry out the Lord's mission is already available to you? What are you looking for? When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. The word here that's translated as spices is a word that to an English listener will immediately make sense. The word is aroma. It's the word that we use in English to describe a beautiful smell. Aroma, aroma, aromatic. So in verse 16, chapter 1, the first thing that is happening is that these women who represent communities are coming to put perfume over the stink of death. They expect Jesus to be dead. They're coming after the fact. It seems to you like, oh, it's really nice what they're doing. But haven't we already heard that the Father would raise Jesus? Didn't he say to you when you were in Galilee that he would suffer many things and that he would be raised? So why are you bringing aromatic oils to anoint the body? What do you expect to find? The other thing that just occurs to me that's strange is why are they waiting so long? I mean, don't forget that Joseph wanted to take the body now so it would be before the Sabbath. 
and then they didn't until after the Sabbath do this. Why were they not following Joseph as he put the body in the tomb? Why wouldn't they anoint the body then? Why would they wait for two days? Now, waiting over the Sabbath, I understand, but why weren't they there saying, oh, we have to get this done before the Sabbath is over? Why was there not a sense of urgency to do this before? But as is articulated in other Gospels, it's not articulated here, but it is interesting that they make this point about the end of the Sabbath. Who cares about your religious rules when your teacher was executed? There are just some things that trump everything. If the God you worship wants you to care more for your religious ordinance than for the needy neighbor, then he's not God. And I would say in a very specific way, he's some kind of God, but he's not the scriptural God. The scriptural God would never put the rules of the Sabbath before the purpose for which those rules were given. So it's a very keen observation on your part. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. This also seems suspicious. Very early in the morning, the first day of the week, at the rising of the sun, why are they sneaking around? Why is it only three of them? What are they afraid of? And that's my question. What are they afraid of? These are the ones who were standing back when Jesus was being crucified and noticed where he was being buried. And now they're sneaking around in the middle of the night in order to anoint his body. Why are they so concerned about association with him? Well, for the same reason why the disciples and everyone else was afraid of association with him, because the stink of shame was on him on that cross, and that stink of shame in their mind went with him to the tomb. And so they brought their spices in order to purge the stink of the shame of what they had witnessed when they saw him crucified and there was no fantastic, amazing, awesome miracle. Now we come to verse 3. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? This is a beautiful verse. It is a critical verse. There's hope in this verse because there's an acknowledgement of helplessness. Once you realize that you don't have the power to move this stone, you don't have the strength to free the teaching from the idol made with human hands. Once you realize that, then suddenly you understand that you are dependent on God. It's akin to the pouring out of the Spirit in Zechariah. The people have committed all kinds of evil, and they don't understand, and they don't see, and they can't comprehend. They're just blind to their own wickedness. That's what sin is. Sin is the belief that someone else is the abuser and you are the victim. Wisdom is the understanding that you are the abuser and that there are no victims, only abusers. Everyone has to think this way because that is the basis for love and overcoming our own tyranny. So here, as in Zechariah, they've been committing a sin that they don't understand. Because of their fear, because of their misplaced amazement, their cowardice, all of it, they betrayed Jesus. They betrayed Jesus because they were still looking for a way that human beings under the banner of Barabbas could achieve something. But here now, they realize they can't achieve anything. That's the power of verse 3. It's like you mentioned in your book. It's as if when Jacob goes and removes the stone for Rachel, 
so that the sheep can drink. These women want to go and remove the stone so that the sheep, that is the people, can drink from the well of Jesus's teaching. But they're in this hopeless state like Rachel where they can't remove it themselves. They need a Jacob who can remove it for them. And it's also just interesting that it's Mary, the mother of James, when James is also Jacob. So it's Mary, the mother of Jacob. So with the two tie-ins, it seems like there's this notion of shepherdism that even enters into this resurrectional, so to speak, scene. Absolutely. The reason I mention it in the book is because Jacob is the son who always tries to do it himself. Isaac is the child of the promise because Isaac is the son who's totally dependent on his father. He depends on his earthly father, Abraham. He doesn't try to win himself a wife. He doesn't do anything. He accepts only grace by the hand of his father, whereas Jacob is always flexing his muscles. And so there's a contrast here. By making that story functional, here in verse 3, what Mark is telling you is that what Jacob thought he could do by showing off to earn the hand of the bride he wanted in marriage, as opposed to depending on his father's wisdom to provide him a bride. What he was trying to do by drinking his protein shake and showing off to the girls. Here, these communities have no one to step in and show off and save them in human terms. Because Jacob rolling back the stone is like Caesar rolling back the stone. It means nothing, it's Jacob, he's a man. But when God intervenes to roll back the stone, then it will work. That's the key. That's how this functions. So again, I really like the fact that they're helpless because when someone in scripture is helpless, then we get down to business. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. No assistance required. This is how grace works. You can't demonstrate how great you are by rolling back the stone. You might be able to impress Rachel, but you can't impress God by rolling back the stone. And if Jacob rolls back the stone, it will not result in the evangelization of the Roman Empire. It won't work. Because Jacob was always doing a business deal with God. He was not depending on God and submitting to God. And like I said before, many times over the entire course of Mark, you're not allowed to be impressed by the superhuman strength of God that he was able to move this big rock. Ooh, ah, God moved a rock. He's so powerful. He's so strong. This is the power of death. You have to understand that it was rolled away in order for something else to happen. So don't be impressed that it was rolled away. They are likely impressed because we know how these people think. Don't fall in the trap. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe and they were amazed. And this amazement, as you were just saying a moment ago, this amazement is misplaced. Why are you amazed? What is the man in the white robe going to tell you? Is it any different than what you heard at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark? I'm going to venture a guess that the answer is no. So are you amazed at what he's about to tell you? Or are you still amazed at the fireworks show? It's the fireworks show. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Now, with respect to the identity of the man wearing a white robe, I know in other Gospels we hear that there were angels at the tomb. In Mark, it doesn't say that there was an angel. 
it says that there was a man. Mark doesn't pay any attention to the individual who's giving you the message in order to make the message that much clearer. Now, what Father Paul Tarazzi argues, and this is something that is published in his scholarship, but I would like to footnote it here. What he argues is that this is the author of the Gospel of Mark, that it is Mark the evangelist himself, and that the white robe is the Stakarian, it's the baptismal robe, it's the robe of the martyrs, and Mark is appearing as an angel, so to speak, to carry the Evangelion to his addressees in the story and those holding this text in their hand and hearing it. And he is about to say what he, the author, has been saying throughout the story. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. We have heard in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus of Nazareth would be crucified and that he would be raised. If you were amazed at the content of the teaching, you would expect this to happen. This is the point about the aroma, the aromatic oils. Why are you bringing spices if you already know that this was supposed to happen and he told you that he was going to be raised? And you wanted to make a big deal out of this fact. And Jesus told you not to talk about it because he knew you didn't understand it. And now the word has been fulfilled and you're amazed? Come on now. They went there to remove the stink of the shame that they thought would be stuck on Jesus. But instead, they removed the stone and rather than living waters coming out, it was this teaching from a guy who was in the tomb and the teaching was, do not be amazed. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, why Galilee? Because it's Galilee of the nations, of the Gentiles. It's the movement of the teaching. It's the movement of the sower sowing the seed out to the nations, which is in fulfillment of the entire biblical story. The Bible doesn't work if it's only applied to one tribe. The Bible is universal. The Bible is for everyone. The Father's love and grace is for everyone. This love and grace is imparted through his teaching, and his teaching has to be shared everywhere so that everyone would understand that they are the ones responsible for breaking the body of Jesus and spilling his blood, and so that they would look upon the one whom they've pierced and realize that they are the abuser, so that they would change their ways. This is the teaching we've had all throughout the book of Mark, and what's beautiful here is he says, Jesus of Nazareth, he goes before you into Galilee. And at the beginning, after we're introduced to John in chapter one, it's Jesus of Nazareth who comes from Galilee to go to John. This is the beginning of Jesus's teaching. So this 
man is saying go back to the beginning of Jesus's teaching in order to make sure you understood it. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. They were so afraid they really did need to go back in order to start over to understand the book because they didn't understand what they were supposed to understand. The man in the white robe just gave them a direct order, go and preach the news. And they were afraid and said nothing. This is what Mark is teaching us. Your fear comes from your worship of Caesar's power. The only power that you worship is the power of God the Father, which was manifest in the weakness of his son on the cross, because it's the teaching that he sent his son to impart that holds his power. And now he's asking you to exercise that power, and you're shutting your mouth, and you're terrified. Don't be afraid. Go and preach. They were afraid, and they refused to preach. They need remedial mark. They need to go back to chapter 1 and start over so that they can, this time, maybe get it. By the grace of God. That sounds like fun. Maybe we'll do Mark again after we finish this series, <laughs> Dr. Benton. Thanks so much. Have a great Thank week. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.